Pray with me, Father, now as we come to the scripture, I pray that you would be with us. Here we stand in your presence desiring to hear. So open our eyes. And bring light where there's darkness. Turn us, Father, that we might know you, hear from you, and live in such a way that glorifies you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. I want to read this whole chapter as I do. I'll stop in places just to fill us in and uh, catch us up to the context so that we can uh, understand what we're hearing. Uh, it may take a little bit of time to do that, but I think it'll be ultimately helpful. Acts in chapter 26, please. Let me just set this up then. Um, this will be a reading of, of, a, of a trial, really, of, of, of the apostle, whose name is Paul, coming uh, before a king whose name is Agrippa. Now, you might remember, if you've been with us and been reading through this with us, to, to remember that, that Paul um, had been arrested in Jerusalem. He had come to Jerusalem, and he had come with the, with the hope of, of unifying the Jews who were believers and the Gentiles who were believers in Jerusalem. And he came with an offering, you remember, from the Gentile church to help the poor in Jerusalem. And then he took this Nazarite vow to show that he wasn't against the customs of his countrymen, the customs of Jewish people, of which he was one. But he took this vow in order to consecrate himself before the Lord with others there. In so doing, however, still, those who were against him brought charges. And they were about to kill him, really, when the Roman authorities stepped in. And the Roman tribune stepped in, and he, he pulled Paul out of that situation, and yet gave Paul an opportunity then to address those who were against him. In Paul's addressing those who were against him, it really didn't help. In other words, they continued to be against him. And so the Roman tribune took him and put him into custody. Uh, at that point in time, there was a plot that came against, I'm sorry, before we got to that, he got to address them again, and he addressed the Sanhedrin, and he addressed the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees making up that group, and he addressed them, and again, uh, violence broke out, and so Paul needed to be protected. At that point in time, a plot came against Paul's life, and so they moved Paul in an amazing kind of way with over 400 soldiers guarding him. They, they moved him ultimately to Caesarea. And there he came before the governor of Caesarea, whose name was um, uh, Felix. And he came before the governor Felix, who was married to a woman who was Jewish. Her name was Drusilla. And uh, uh, Felix was known for his uh, ruthlessness and his cruelty and so forth. But Paul came before him and he made his case. The accusers came and Paul came as well. And Paul made his case. And in making his case, he shared his testimony of Felix didn't really want to make a decision about this, and so he sort of kept Paul in prison for another couple of years. At the end of that period, Felix was deposed, and a new governor came in whose name was Festus. And Festus was, uh, came with his sister whose name was Bernice. Now, you can follow this soap opera with me. That um, I'm sorry, I'm wrong about that. Festus just came. I got ahead of myself. The soap opera comes in a minute. Uh, Festus came, and, and he didn't really know what to do with Paul either. He went to Jerusalem, met with the accusers of Paul, 
And in meeting with the accusers of Paul, he says, now you need to come to Caesarea and make this case again. So they did, and Paul gave his defense. He, wanting to satisfy the, the, his, his Jewish constituency, said, well, I'll just send Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried there. This doesn't seem to be a case that matters with Rome. And then Paul said, well, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen, and I appeal to Caesar, meaning you've got to send me to Rome to be tried there. Well, that just blew all of Festus' gaskets. He didn't know quite what to do with that. Fortunately for him, the king of that region was coming, whose name was Agrippa. And Agrippa was married, well, Agrippa's sister was named Bernice. It was suggested through the tradition that he had an incestuous relationship with her. She was not known for her morality, neither was he. But interestingly, Agrippa and Bernice were siblings of Drusilla, who happened to be the wife of of Felix that we had encountered just a governor or so ago. So you've got all of this mess going on. Now Agrippa was the great-grandson of a guy by the name of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was of the baby-killing fame at the birth of Jesus. And Agrippa's, the second's father, aptly named Agrippa I, was the Agrippa, that the Herod that we find in Acts chapter 12, who had arrested the apostle James and killed him, arrested the apostle Peter with hopes of killing him, but you remember the great escape. And he himself, Agrippa I, was actually killed by the Lord, if you remember in Acts 12, because of his arrogance and pride. And he was eaten by worms. So that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves with the Apostle Paul now making his case in front of King Agrippa II, who's Jewish, he's of the Herod dynasty, and his sister Bernice is with him. Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa, that's the Agrippa. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now, just one other thing you've got to catch in the scene of this. We didn't read it in the end of chapter 25. But in the scene of this is that Agrippa and Bernice entered this scene along with Festus and, and all of the, the, the important people of the city of Caesarea. So they all kind of entered in together. You can only picture this with Agrippa and Bernice coming first, with Festus coming second, with, with, with this procession of the great men in the city following in after him. And you can only imagine that Agrippa and Bernice were dressed in all their royal robes, big purple robes like nobody else could afford, no one else could even think to wear such a thing. Probably around their brows they had, they had ringlets of gold and so forth. And so here they walk in with this great pomp, uh, Festus probably uh, dressed as the governor would be dressed, again, above everyone else, all the prominent people of the city, all the wealthy people, all the people that, 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 were, all, that were in the know and, and, and so forth. And then they bring in Paul. Now, we don't have any great descriptions of Paul in the scriptures. There's some sort of apocryphal descriptions of Paul. None of them are flattering. It wasn't his appearance at all. He even makes reference at times to his own weakness. And so you can only get the sense that there's this little man in the midst of all this pomp, in the midst of all this ceremony, in the midst of all this wealth, in the midst of all this importance and all of that, here comes this little man in chains. And then Agrippa turns to him and says, you can talk. So that's where we are. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense, he said. 
I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I don't think Paul's simply buttering up Agrippa at this point. I think this is sincere. I think he looks at God and says, what wonderful providence. What a great thing God has done that I can share this in front of a man who's Jewish himself, who at least understands our customs, because, because Paul has this sense that, that I can reason with him and I, I can lay this out before him and he'll see my point. He'll see the point that I'm not against my countrymen. In fact, I believe everything they believe plus everything they should believe based on what they already believe. If he can see this, then I'm, this is wonderful providence that I'm not just in front of a Roman governor, but I'm in front of one who, has, who comes from our tradition. Verse 4. My manner of life from youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible that any of you, uh, to, by any of you that God raises the dead? And so he says, here I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But, but really, that's the very hope of our people from the very beginning. The promise that, our, that God made to our fathers, that is to Abraham, that from your seed all the nations of the world will be, will be blessed, that, that, that that's the very promise in which we have hope. And this is it. So, and, and why should you be surprised that anyone who is God raises from the dead? Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in... Raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul says, I was, I was a zealot for, for, for Judaism as I understood it and as this party in my religion, the Pharisees understood it. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He says, remember, I was with them. They gave me authority to do what I did. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, remember that was Paul's name before it was changed. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And, and so Jesus comes to Paul in a very personal way, in his own language, in the Hebrew language. That's significant. He said, in the Hebrew language, because I'm being on trial here because you don't think I'm a good enough Jew. Well, this really good Jew named Jesus spoke to me in Hebrew, and that's how we communicated, and that's how he came to all of this. And, and Jesus identified with the people that Paul was persecuting, so much so that Jesus was able to say, why are you persecuting me. So these people were affiliated, associated, closely tied with Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus says, 
But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people, from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. Now notice the commission that Paul was to receive and did receive from Jesus. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they, might, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus is saying to Paul, I want you to go to people whose eyes are blind. Paul would write to the church in Corinth that the evil one has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So sin brings blindness. He says, I want you to open their eyes. And I'm going to give you a gospel. I'm going to give you the spirit of God with which to open their eyes. I want you to open their eyes. And he says, I want you to, to, to um, so that they may turn from darkness. Because presently they're in utter darkness. Such darkness that, that we really don't know. I was walking through my house the other nights and all the lights were out. But I, I could get around. Not only because I knew my house. But because there's little lights all over the place. I mean, the microwave has a little light on it. And the little whatever, DVD, VCR, whatever those things are now. They have little lights on them. And, and, and there's, you know, we have, going up our stairs, we have these little lights that go up. And you look outside and not only there's stars, but there's porch lights on all over the place. And we don't know darkness, darkness. But if you ever get in a closet or something like that where there's darkness, you can't even see your own hand in front of your face. You're just simply lost. That's the kind of darkness that Jesus is speaking of when he speaks with Paul. He's saying they're spiritually in darkness. They simply don't know where to go. So they're in darkness. I want you to turn them from that to light and from the power of Satan. He says and behind all of this, of course, is this power of evil, the power of this evil one, to turn them from all of that to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Now that is so significant, especially we need to emphasize it in our day, because, because the problem with humanity isn't simply brokenness. It isn't simply that things aren't as they should be. That's true, we're broken, and things aren't as they should be. But what we need for correction of all of this is forgiveness, meaning that someone in the midst of all of this has been offended by us. And that someone is God. And so the, so the, 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 the fix here isn't simply to mend the brokenness. It isn't just to fix the brokenness. It isn't just to change the misery and make things better. It's, it's to reconcile a relationship which requires forgiveness, which requires the one who has offended to be forgiven. So anyway, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, Jesus is saying, for those who believe in me, there's, there's, there's a place and they're sanctified in me that is set apart to be reconciled to God, to have a very place with God. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first uh, to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent... 
and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul says, this is what I, I told them when I came to them, that they should repent. Now, the Hebrew understanding is, means to turn. It means you're going in the wrong direction. And if you want to be really, really theologically correct, not only are you going in the wrong direction, but you're on the wrong road, going in the wrong direction. And sadly, you're making great time, you know, but you're still going in the wrong direction. And, and where you're going to end up is in destruction. So to repent means that you must turn around and you must get on the right road, if you will, and head in the right direction. Now, in the Greek mind, the word for repentance means to change your mind. So it's a turning of the mind. It's a changing of one's understanding. And so, basically, repentance then means, uh, I, I realize I, I've been utterly wrong. Utterly wrong about God. Utterly wrong about life. And thus, that repentance, then, is accompanied by, and it's, it's coincidental, they seem to come together, a, a sense of humility. This, I've been wrong. Utterly wrong. Sinfully wrong rebelliously wrong against against God. I don't know if you've ever hurt someone without really knowing it. I suspect you have. I suspect you still don't know some of these hurts because people have been gracious to you. They're often called husbands or wives. Uh, but uh, I trust that that's the case. But when it dawns on you that you've hurt them, doesn't that bring to you a sense of well, for, we're human, I can choose. Embarrassment. I mean, there's some, there's this little bird on the inside going, oh, I can't believe I did that. And you go, yes, I can. And it's, it brings humility. It brings this sense of, ah, I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. I guess I'm not as whatever as I thought I was because I, I've sinned against this other person. I, I, I finally realize it. Well, there's this, this sense, you see, when we come to our senses, when we realize our wrongness, there's a humility that comes and says, I thought life was X, and now I realize it's Y. It's different than what I had imagined it even to be, than I had thought it to be. And in, in, in my, my wrongness, I've offended this one who made me and who loves me and who's revealed, revealed himself to me in so many ways, most especially in Jesus. And, and, and now I, I realize my wrongness. That's the sense of repentance. It brings humility. It brings a sense of sorrow. Not that, well, I've just been wrong and, and therefore how embarrassing is that. But no, 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 no. The sense of sorrow that I've hurt another that I've gone against this one who's loved me. And so this humility brings a sense of, of sorrow. But the good news about this repentance is that it comes by way of faith in Jesus. So I can actually face my accuser. I can actually face this one I've hurt and know that I'm going to be received because I'm coming in Jesus and what he's done. He's paid the penalty. Thus I can face God in my repentance and receive from him pardon and acceptance and be, be named then among these these ones set apart, these ones sanctified, these ones set apart for God. So, so Paul says, that's what I've been preaching, to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, from the kingdom, the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light, to turn from that and to trust in Christ, for he's the one who brings us into fellowship with God. And then to live like that, meaning to perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Verse 21. For this reason the Jews seized me, seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
to this day I've, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Having time, but, but no doubt when Jesus was resurrected and he met with his disciples, this is in Luke chapter 24, what does he do? Did you ever wonder what Jesus would do if he just sort of showed up and sat with you? Well, what he did with his disciples after he showed up and sat with them was to show how it was that Moses and the Psalms and the prophets had spoken of him. So he took them through the whole Old Testament and said, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me. And so Paul says, that's what our fathers have always believed. Moses and the prophets. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said to him, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, basically Paul's saying, just, you, you, know, you, you read the newspapers, you, you saw the, you saw the, the evening news, you, you know, Agrippa, what's going on. This is your place. You're the king over this place. This hasn't happened in, in secret. This hasn't happened in, in a place where nobody can see it. This whole thing about Jesus, this whole thing about my life, this whole thing about what's happened to me, that's, that's all well-known stuff. Agrippa, you know this. You're the king. And then he says this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would, be to, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, we can go on and read the rest, but basically Agrippa and Festus agree that they would set Paul free, but, but they can't because they've got to send him on to Rome, and that's what we'll get to some other week. But I want to concentrate our attention on this verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Now I began last week by asking a question. What was it that sustained Paul, sustained his witness, that enabled him to continue to witness of the truth of Christ in this part of his life? And I mentioned that because as we've been reading through the book of Acts, what we've been accustomed to hearing is this expression, this refrain. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And even as Paul went out, he planted churches and he saw many come to faith. But beginning in chapter 21, as we noticed, as Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, we find now a couple of years going by where that isn't happening, where we're not reading that the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. Paul isn't planting churches. Paul isn't seeing what he had seen before. Now that doesn't mean that the, the whole uh, work of Christ has stopped. We don't know what else is going on. We trust that people are coming to faith through the ministries of others and, and that sort of thing. But Paul's in jail. Paul's in prison. None of that's happening. Every so often he pops out and, and, and still he has the passion and the energy to, to testify of Jesus. And the question is how? What's sustaining him in all that? I gave one answer last week. I'm going to give a second this week very quickly. But before I get to that, I just simply want to ask this. Is that true for us? In other words, 
Paul was able to look at these people and he said, I wish to God that you were like me, except for these chains. See, Paul had this deep and abiding sense of not only his own need, but the need of all people. He had this deep and abiding sense, not only of his need, but, but the need of all people. And again, this was an amazing sight. This was a little, tiny, what appeared to be insignificant man in chains, speaking to the king, speaking to the governor, speaking to all the prominent people. If you looked upon this picture and you, you would ask the question, who has everything here, you'd point to the king. And if you asked the question, who has nothing here, you would point to Paul. Except Paul was saying, I have everything and you have nothing. Now, I don't want you to be in prison, you know. And don't you know, I mean, I just have this sense that when he said that, he kind of rattled the chains a bit. You know, just except for these chains. Just to make the point, don't forget about the fact that I shouldn't be in these chains. But, but, but that wasn't his primary thing at this point. His primary thing, you get the sense, is he really does want to lead Agrippa to faith in Christ more than he wants to be freed, more than anything else. And he's able to make this statement, which is a bold statement to the king. Oh, I wish you were like me. In a sense, King Agrippa, I've got something you don't. And it wasn't an arrogant statement. It wasn't the kind of statement that said, I, I want to be able to convince you so that I can have another notch on my Bible. I, I don't want to convince you just so you vote for me and I can advertise the fact that I, I got the king. But, but, but this sense of saying, no, 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 Agrippa, you, you're blind. I want you to see you're in darkness. I want to bring light into the power of Satan. I want you to bring you into the power of his dear son. I want you to know that. And, and my question is, is, is that really how we walk around? Is that really how we're thinking as we see others? Or do we see what they have and what we don't and, and want what they have? As opposed to realizing what it is that we have in Jesus. Now you remember, I'll just leave that with you, just, just deal with that. But remember last week I asked the question, what sustained Paul? What, what enabled him to maintain his witness in all of this? And they said there were two things. The first thing, the thing we looked at last week was out of chapter 21 in verse 13, where Paul says to people who are telling him not to go to Jerusalem, this is a while ago, he says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. That is, that is, Paul had a passion for the name of Christ. He had a passion for the, for the glory of Christ. He wanted Jesus to be known. He wanted Jesus to be glorified because he didn't know anyone or anything as great as Jesus. And Jesus deserved to be worshipped. Jesus deserved to be known. And so, apart from everything else, Apart from whether anybody believed him, apart from any, whether anybody came to faith, apart from whether or not it got him in trouble or got him out of trouble or anything else, he says, I need to be speaking of Jesus because Jesus is glorious and I simply can't help myself. I mean, we speak of athletes that way, we think of statesmen that way, we think of our, speak of our favorite, favorite authors that way. Uh, we speak of our children that way, our grandchildren of that way. They're just glorious, we just have to speak of them. And Paul says, no, I know the glorious one, our Lord Jesus. And that, of course, was the way of Jesus himself. Jesus came to glorify his Father. 
before he came to save us, before he came to love us, he wanted to make certain that his father was glorified. Do you remember that passage? Maybe not. Out of Romans in chapter 15 and verse 8 and following that I read. It said of Jesus that he came, in a sense, to show the truthfulness of his father. To vindicate his father's truthfulness. So that the Gentiles, and the Jews as well, but the Gentiles would glorify him. Jesus says, I've come not to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. He said, I've come that my Father might be glorified. Oh, the Father's going to glorify me, but that will simply be to his glory. Jesus said, I've come so that God will be glorified. And that's what God does. God lives, if you will, to express his own glory, to reflect his own glory, as well it should be. You and I don't get to do that because we're not all that glorious. But everything should reflect the glory of God because His love is glorious. His wisdom is glorious. His patience is glorious. His justice is glorious. He should live to reflect Himself which to our benefit. He does. It's the way of God. It's the way of Jesus to live for His glory. That sustained Paul. But there's something else as well. You get the sense at this point that as Paul looked upon King Agrippa and he looked upon Bernice, and he looked upon Festus, and he looked upon the the, the prominent people in the city, that he had a sense of their own need. And there was a bond there, one man to other human beings, and says, "I, I care for you. I want you to have this, because this is good, and this will be a blessing to you. In fact, this is everything. This is everything to you. There's a sense in which... You could say that what sustained Paul was his compassion for them, his pity for them, his love for them. The way he put it like this in Romans in chapter 9, as he expresses his heart for his fellow countrymen, he writes this, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I... Myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying, I have this deep and abiding compassion, so much so that if it would work, I I would give my own life for them. It won't work. It's not going to be atoning for them. But if it would, I would stand accursed for them. If it would work, I would even allow myself to be damned by God that they may be saved. I mean, what compassion, what incredible love that he has for them. And that, of course, is the way of, of God. For God so loved. Who did he love? He loved those who were perishing. And what did he do? He did something. He sent his son so that they wouldn't perish. I mean, I mean that's his, his very point. That's the way of God. This very way of God who speaks of himself as, as, as like a woman who, who lost a favorite coin and, and couldn't stopped looking for it and when it was found rejoiced. He, he compares himself to a shepherd who had a hundred and one sheep went off and so he left the 99 to go get the one so that, so that he could rejoice as he finds it. That kind of love, that kind of joy that says, I'll go after. He compares himself to this father whose son is rebellious in the most dishonoring way and yet when the son repents and comes back, he sees him and he's filled with joy even as he receives this one who's wandered away, this one who's rebelled back. He says, that's the very way of God. There's this compassion for these very ones. Even the enemies of God. 
He says he loves in some deep, significant sense. Jesus, we read, of his own heart. As he looks out upon those who are not with him, who are lost. And he puts it like this, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he, the he there is, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus saw them. He saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And it said that his heart was moved with compassion. It's a great expression. And happens over and over again, especially in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus sees people in need. The expression is, and he had compassion. Because there was in Jesus this very love of God. And I think Paul was driven by that as, well, we must. you remember? It was on this day, this day we call Palm Sunday, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. It was an amazing time. Um, it was a time where as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he tells a couple of his disciples, you remember, to go and find this colt upon which no one had ever ridden. You read stuff like that and you go, I bet that's significant. You know, no one has ever ridden this. It would be like a king coming into the city. And it would be a cult. And when the king would come into a city, it would be an announcement, not of war, but of, of peace to come. And so he says, get this cult. And, 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 and they did. And Jesus said, if anybody asks why you're taking this cult, uh, you simply say, the Lord is in need of it. And that happened. And they said it. And they brought it. And before Jesus could sit on it, they put their their wraps, their outer garments upon this colt so he could sit on it even as, as the colt would, would, would move ahead. They'd lay these things on the road and, and it would announce this great one is coming. A great multitude assembled, you remember, and they continued to shout, Hosanna, which means God save us. They were no doubt singing from Psalm 118. That was the last little note of our call to worship this morning. Save us, God. Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And they were shouting that and shouting that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, his, his, his kingdom is to come. He is the king. He's going to come. He's going to save us. They may not have known exactly what that meant. Perhaps they meant he was going to overthrow the Romans. Who knows? But they knew that he would save them. He would bring peace. Do you remember not everybody was really happy about that? Uh, in fact, even these same ones wouldn't be all that happy about that. Their shouts of Hosanna would change to crucify him in not too many days. But on that day, there was the group Pharisees of whom Paul had identified in his life. And they said to Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, if I told them to be quiet, the stones would shout it. It was as if Jesus saying, you're right, Pharisees. You're getting it. You're understanding who I am in the midst of this. And it's going to be announced. And it is. And the very end of that time, Luke, and only Luke, puts this to us. This is Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. We read this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Get that scene. I mean, sometimes the Bible just gives us whiplash, doesn't it? I mean, here we have Jesus, and we're thinking... Woohoo, this is awesome. The king's coming, everybody's cheering, and everything's great. And then all of a sudden, you get this moment where you just feel all of that get sucked away, 
And you get this sense of Jesus, almost a sense of aloneness. There he is. He looks over the city, and you get the sense that when he looks over the city, he's seeing stuff that nobody else is seeing as he looks over the city. This isn't just a glance. This isn't just somebody just looking at the horizon. This is somebody seeing deep within the heart, not only of the city, but of the people and the temple and the motives and all of that. And it says, he wept. What an amazing thing. Now for theologians, that, this just drives us crazy because you think, what's going on with Jesus? I mean, he's the king of the all. He's the sovereign one. He could change everything. Why is he weeping? Why would he allow himself to be sad? Why doesn't he simply save them? Why doesn't he simply change them? We can see where he's changed us. We can see where he's changed others. We can see he's the sovereign one. Actually, this is his plan. He's known from day one that this is going to occur. He knows that he's going to be rejected by his own people. Why isn't just this whole home to him? Why isn't he just checking this off the list? Okay, they're going to reject me. But no, it's not like that. And while we may not understand all the ins and outs of this, because this is God, right? He's way more complex than we could ever know. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. We'd love to be able to understand everything about him at any one point in time. But this glimpse of him tells us this. That God loves. And he's grieved. He's grieved by our sin. He's grieved by our ignorance. He's grieved by the fact that we miss him, even as he is so obvious as he stands before us. Now, it means a whole lot of other things too, I'm sure, and there's other things related to that. But at this moment in time, what we see and what we need to see, because we need to incorporate this as part of our lives as we walk the way of Jesus, is that we should see as Jesus sees. That is, we should look over the horizon and see people as they are, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it should move us in the same way that it moved Jesus. That is to say, that we should have compassion as he had compassion. It should move us in the same way way that it moved Jesus in the sense that we should find ourselves, not always, but from time to time, as it strikes us, as we realize it, as we see it weeping. We have a tendency to be critical. We have a tendency to put down. We have a tendency sometimes even to pride and arrogance and think if they only had what we had because... But it moved Jesus to weep and it should move us to weep in compassion. And I think the thing that moved Paul, yes, for the glory of God, yes, Jesus is glorious, yes, I'm going to continue to speak of him because I must because he's the glorious one. But there was something else too, that he loved these lost people and felt for them as God feels for them, even in the mystery of God. Man came to Jesus and said, what are the greatest commandments? He said, well, the first one is that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, you're to live to glorify Him. You're to, to reflect Him. Everything in your life is to show that you love Him. But there's a second one, and it's like the first. It isn't the first, but it's like the first. And, and it isn't first, it's second. It comes after the first. You can't reverse these. The first one is your whole life is to be oriented around God. But when your life is oriented around God and you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, here's what you're going to be find true of yourself, that you actually love people. And if you don't, then the first one isn't true in your life. Jesus said, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. 
And so we need to be motivated by both of these. First, for the glory of God. First, because He's glorious. And even if everyone rejects us, and even if nobody listens, and we still speak of Him. Why? Because He's glorious, and He deserves to be spoken of. But the second one is like this, that we need to be moved out of compassion for them. And you say, well, how do I get there? Pray. Pray that God will give you a heart of compassion. Think about how he was compassionate towards you. Think about the very fact that if it weren't for Christ, you would be lost. If it weren't for what he had done, you would be lost. 